0: Hey, good evening, welcome. Uh, tonight, as Luke said, we're starting up our series again, Seeing Jesus from Genesis to Revelation. Um, in John 12, 21, it says some Greeks came to Jesus and, or to Philip and said, we would see Jesus. And essentially, that's what we've been doing. Last year, we went through the Old Testament, uh, book by book. And now this year, we're going to start into the New Testament with, of course, the Gospel of Matthew. Let's have a word of prayer, and we'll get going. Father, I thank you that we can be here together. There's a beautiful and wondrous thing, Lord, when two or more are gathered in your name because you said that you're right here in our midst. There is an evidence and a revelation of your presence to speak into our lives that is not found in in many other contexts. So, Lord, I just pray that today, tonight, Lord, your spirit would speak to us. Thank you for the, the great pizza this evening. We thank you. For just the fun the kids got to have, Lord, we pray that you'd now thrill our hearts with your truth, we ask in Jesus' name, amen. Well, the Gospel of Matthew is obviously the, uh, one of the longest books of the New Testament, but I want to begin by talking a little bit about the, first of all, with the big picture in terms of the New Testament. Really, it's a story in three acts. You can divide it into three major sections. You have the Gospels, which is obviously the story of Jesus. You have the book of Acts, which is the story of the church, and then you have the rest of the letters, the rest of the New Testament, which really develops the theology of the church. In other words, theology means our study of God and hopefully our response to God as well. And so as we go through these three sections, hopefully we'll develop a really clear sense of not only who Jesus is, but also what the church is intended by God to be. I'm really looking forward to going through uh, these different testimonies. But one of the things that we often hear in criticisms of the Scriptures, and particularly of the Gospels, is people say, well, you know, how reliable is the history? Uh, the historicity, we often say, of the Scriptures. And it's kind of an interesting thing because there's a lot of things we can say in terms of we know that the biblical texts that we have in the New Testament are uh, have to be close to exactly the thing that was written in the first century. And even we talk about Matthew, the oldest existing fragment of a of, of manuscript of the of the book of the gospel of Matthew. It's taken out of chapter twenty-six. It's even just part of a verse, and has been dated to around 50 AD, which is like um, in in historical document terms, this is like yesterday. But it's really kind of an amazing thing. But one of the things that the Bible says about itself is that it's the testimony of eyewitnesses. Uh, Peter says in 2 Peter 1.16, he makes the statement, we did not follow cleverly invented stories. The King James says, cunningly, cunningly devised fables. But he says, when we told you about the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of His majesty... He goes on to say that following the transfiguration of Jesus, he said the voice came to him from the majestic glory saying, this is my son whom I love, with him I am well pleased. And he says, we ourselves heard this voice that came from heaven when we were with him on the sacred mountain. And so what Peter's basically saying, you want to understand why my life was so dramatically transformed? It's because I didn't just hear this stuff. I actually saw it with my own eyes. I experienced it with my own heart. Luke says something very similar. Even though Luke is really, uh, t- really is a a, a a editor who's taking the stories of many, he says him himself. He says many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those from whom the first were the first eyewitnesses and servants of the word. Therefore, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, it seemed good also to me to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things that you have been taught. So Luke is telling us, I wrote this gospel because I intended to give an accurate historical record of everything that Jesus did and said. And then last of all, we have John the Apostle who wrote the last of the gospels. He tells us in the opening of his first letter to the churches, he says, that which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at, literally refers to having pondered upon what we have seen in front of us, and our hands have touched This we proclaim to you. So I think it's important for us as we begin to read through these gospels and look at them, that we're talking about documents that were the recordings of people who actually went through the experience. Now, we might ask the question, so why do we have four Gospels? It's not the way we would do it. Now, if I was writing the Bible today, I would probably write one Gospel. I would be the hero throughout. And, you know, I mean, that's kind of how that works. Why do we have four Gospels? And most interestingly, it doesn't flatter any of the people except Jesus. (laughs) Jesus is the only one who actually looks good. That's one of those hints that maybe it's likely that they were telling the truth. Because, you know, the natural inclination of our personalities is to, we may not be lying, we're just kind of polishing the story a little bit to make it a little more attractive. At least that's what my wife tells me I do all the time. But anyway, um, but what we need to understand is that, first of all, we have four Gospels because there were four different audiences we talk about the Titleist. You know what the Titleist is? When, when they hung Jesus on the cross, they put a plaque up there, and they wrote that uh, basically one of the Gospels recorded, this is Jesus of Nazareth, the king of, king of the Jews. Well, as we compare all four Gospels, we realize that we're told that this was written in three languages. It was written in Hebrew, it was written in Greek, and it was written in Latin. And the reason was because those were the three dominant cultures of the Mediterranean world at that particular time. So that these were the languages that were spoken. Hebrew was spoken almost exclusively within the synagogue. Uh, Aramaic and and Greek, Aramaic was the language of the street. Greek was the language of commerce, uh, much like English today. American English is in the world today. And Latin was the language of government. But they also represented those cultures, the Greek culture, the Roman culture, and also the, the Jewish culture. And so we find that each of the four gospels has a different theme that varies with the audience that it's being written to. For example, when we look at Matthew, as you'll see from what I present tonight, very clearly written by a Jew for Jews, the way a Jew would understand it. And I mean, in other words, it's almost ri- it's written in a way that we say this guy must be a rabbi, the way he's presenting the information. But he's, he focuses on the promise of the Messiah. Here is the fulfillment of everything that, the, that God the Father has promised us through the prophets in the Old Testament. When you come to Mark's gospel, very different feel. Short, crisp, to the point action-based, emphasis upon the power of Jesus, has the fewest number of teachings of Jesus, of all the gospel writers, and yet it's this idea that Jesus is a world changer by the impact that he has. Then we have the Gospel of Luke, where we find that uh, Luke very clearly, even in this, in this uh, approbation in the middle, beginning of the letter where he says, "Oh Theophilus, he is obviously writing to a Greek audience from which he had come out of, And he portrays Christ not so much as the Son of God, but as the Son of Man, which we know was a prophetic name for the Messiah. But the the humanity of Jesus really kind of bleeds all over the Gospel of Luke. This is where we see Jesus actively having compassion on the multitudes and seeing people as shepherds without a sheep. Uh, There's a whole heart of Jesus that comes out uh, in that particular Gospel where we sense that Jesus is a lover of mankind. And then you have John's gospel. I refer to it simply as the post Jewish world gospel. Because written probably around the beginning of the 2nd the century, uh, sometime around 100 A.D., it's, it's all the other apostles have passed on. He's the last remaining apostle, and he's speaking to a dramatically different world. Jerusalem has been destroyed. Judea has been uh, absorbed into the Roman Empire under M- Roman authority completely with a Roman army in place. Uh, the Jews have been driven from the land for the most part. It's a different world. That the issue between the Jew and the Christian is no longer the main issue to be fought over, as we see in Paul's letter. But really, the issue now is confronting the false theologies of the Greek and the Roman world, things like Gnosticism and other things of that nature, which we'll get into when we study that. So that you see that there's four different audiences. There's four different emphasis or themes. But there's also four different styles. I mean, Matthew emphasizes the teachings of Jesus. And you'll see this more clearly when we get further into it. Mark emphasizes the miracles of Jesus. Luke emphasizes the parables of Jesus. And John, the divinity of Jesus. In fact, one of the things we find interesting about John's gospel is John is the only gospel writer who talks extensively about Jesus' ministry in Judea. Matthew, Mark, and Luke, we call them the synoptic gospels, means sin, means same optic view. They take the same view of the gospels. In other words, they focus on Jesus' Galilean ministry, and there's a lot of sharing of material between those three gospels. John's gospel is almost exclusively material that's not included in the other ones, and he, he, without John's gospel, we wouldn't know how actively Jesus was involved with the temple, with Jerusalem and his ministry in Judea. So the other three look at Galilee primarily. The Gospel of John focuses upon uh, Judea and Jerusalem. And that will mean something to you later on as we get into the study. But there's one last thing, that we may have four different styles, we may have four different themes, we may have four different audiences, but we have really only one central emphasis, and that is the cross of Christ. And where I think this comes out really unmistakably is you look at how the 30 years of Jesus's life are divided. We find that the two-thirds of the gospel uh, are focused upon primarily Jesus's three years of public ministry. So we know hardly anything about his his previous 30 years, but most of it is on those, those three years in which Jesus was doing his public ministry. But what's interesting, one entire third of the gospel, and even more so in John's gospel, half of John's gospel covers one week. That's Passion Week. In other words, what is really the central focus of the gospel records? It's Jesus crucified, yea, resurrected. And telling that story from the triumphal entry until His crucifixion and resurrection. That's fully a third of the entire gospel. So the emphasis, again, is upon the cross, upon the, the empty tomb, the resurrection. And again, you, you'll, you'll begin, when you become aware of that, you'll start seeing it when you read it. And it will give you a different sense of where that story is going because everything the gospel writers are writing is pointing towards the cross of Christ, which is, by the way, a hint... For you and I about living our day-to-day life, <laughs> that it's really the victorious Christian life is based upon being focused upon the cross, being focused upon the cross, submitting myself to it and believing in everything that's promised because of it. That becomes a critical to, the, to really living in what I would call a, a victorious and joyful Christian life. By victorious, I don't mean that you win every battle or you're always a hero in shining armor. What I mean is that you overcome the challenges that will be part of your life every day as you follow after Jesus. Let's talk about Matthew, though. Now, enough for introductory comments on the whole book. Let's talk about his gospel. Who wrote the book of Matthew? Well, both tradition and text uh, implied to us that it was written by a man by the name of Matthew, Matthew Ben-Levi, or Matthew the son of Levi, We say that because there's an account that's given to us in Matthew's gospel where he names himself. He says in in chapter 9, verse 9, it says, "...as Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me," Jesus told him, and Matthew got up and followed him. And while Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, Many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, "Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners?" Now it's interesting because in Mark and Luke they record the exact same event, almost literally the exact same words. But they tell them the name of the man was Levi or, or Levi, as we would pronounce it, not Matthew. So we know that that Levi is probably his last name. Matthew would be his first name. But what I find more interesting about that particular example is how did a man who came from the tribe of Levi, the tribe which was, you know, really appointed by God to serve uh, at the temple, how did he become a tax collector? And we're not told. I mean, I, I, I sit there and create all sorts of scenarios in my life of a dysfunctional childhood and all those kind of things, you know, because his parents didn't get him Xbox when he was a certain age and he took, you know, never recovered, now, you know, like your kids do. But the whole thing is, is fascinating to me because here he is, a man who was by heritage born into the highest levels of his society, but he has fallen to the lowest place. I love something Max Lucia, I was just reading this morning in my devotional time, he he made this comment, he said, when we fall, we fall into the hands of Jesus. I I love that. Oswald Chambers said, when we fall, we fall forward. And so it is, we look at this man who has fallen. We remember the story in Luke about Zacchaeus, who was the chief tax collector. I mean, he was way up the pecking order in, in terms of financial rewards and generally considered to be bad guy and we we recognize him coming to Christ but Matthew Levi this is an interesting story to me here was a man who had come with all of the privileges of life but had really sold his soul in the minds of his countrymen to the devil and that brings out a certain interesting emphasis in his gospel one of the things that does become interesting as well is that the author of Matthew is very familiar with finances because he talks more about money than any other gospel. 27 times he refers to money in his teaching, in, te- in sharing the teachings of Jesus, which is obviously, I-, I suspect it was the issue for him. It was the thing that he struggled with because he says when he's recording the words of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 6:19, he says, "'Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moss and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal.'" You know, I think for Matthew, when Jesus said these words, they probably were branded on his brain. They burned with such hot conviction because that's, I think, who he was. This was the man. He lived for earthly treasure. And he says, but store up yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy, where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And I I mean, again... Excuse me, I'm, I'm, I'm reading into this, but I just sense from this whole thing that here's this guy, Matthew, is saying, this is how my life became redefined or, or around what I once thought was important. I got up, when he called me and said, follow me, I walked away. You know, what it's like is it's walking away from, say, a, a $250,000 a year job where you had a corner office with a view, Right? and you're powerful and you're important, you're influential, and suddenly you say, you know, I really feel God has called me to work at the Union Gospel Mission. It's that dramatic of a shift in his life. And what Matthew, I know, would like us to recognize is that is the power of God when you see Him as He really is. When you see Him, it changes you. It brands something on your brain that makes it impossible for you to look at things the way you once did. Well, when did Matthew write this? Uh, Again, I said the earliest papyrus fragments we have, uh, are, are the Magdala papyrus, are dated to around 50 A.D. And so we know that the Gospel of Matthew was in circulation, even though the fragments, the two little fragments, they're about the size of, of my fists but, but nonetheless on papyrus that were found in a, in a marketplace in, in, in Egypt uh, in the 19th century but literally it's amazing when you think about that one because when people talk about you know the Bible was written years ago it's been changed and mistranslated and copied and miserred and blah 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 well a short answer you can go check out the tapes when I did how we got our Bible but no, the thing is it's just simply not true. A person who is saying that is, is really relishing their ignorance and sharing it with you as well. Um, what's interesting is that Mark's gospel was written before Matthew's. So it tells us that the gospels began to circulate within a decade of the crucifixion, which again, to us, a decade may seem like a long time, unless you're my age and it seems like yesterday. But a decade, in, again, when you're talking about ancient t- texts, is, is nothing. There is not another example of any ancient text that is that close to the time of its, uh, the events which it records. And so uh, it's, it's a pretty remarkably reliable uh, uh, record that we have. But uh, again, who did he write? Well, I've already told you the answer to that. He wrote to the Jews. We have phrases that jump out. Ten times he's referred to as the son of David. Only a Jew would take notice of that phrase. He would know it was reference to the Messiah. Eight times he's called the Christos in Greek or the Mesiach in 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 Hebrew, the Messiah. He's eight times he's referred to as the Son of God in the context of God the Father. And it may sound strange to us, but the idea of the God the Father was a was a concept that was purely Jewish. Romans didn't have the idea of God the Father, they didn't have that, the Greeks certainly didn't have it, nor did the Hindus or anybody else in the world. So it was a unique concept that appears in Matthew's Gospel, a very Jewish concept. We also have in the first chapter the, the genealogy that Matthew provides for us of, the, of Christ descending from Adam all the way through, through David, but with emphasis upon Jesus being in the direct linear descent of King David. The Messiah had to be a son of David. He had to be the heir to the throne. Jeremiah the prophet, remember back in chapter 22 of Jeremiah, said no one will profit, no mortal man will profit sitting on the throne of David until the Messiah comes. And so he is the fulfillment of all these promises. It's even interesting that two times in Matthew's gospel, we find that he is referred to as the king of the Jews, but not by Jews. The first time is by Herod, Herod was the king he was a king of Judea but he himself was Idumean and only practically a Jew not really one functionally but nonetheless he referred, when the when the uh, when the uh, Magi come looking for the one who is the king of the Jews he calls to get, calls the rabbis the scholars and said where's the one who has been born king of the Jews so in chapter 2 we have Herod calling him the king of the Jews in chapter 27 we have Pilate saying, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus responding, yes, it is as you say. That is particularly significant in terms of the message that that Matthew is trying to communicate to his Jewish friends and, and brethren. And he goes on to say, how is this proven to us that he is the king of the Jews? And he says it's proven through the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies. There are 50 direct quotations from the old testament things like in matthew 3 3 where he says this is he who was spoken of through the prophet isaiah a voice of one calling in the desert prepare the way of the lord make straight paths for him so at this point what we find is that matthew is speaking to us the way a jewish rabbi would speak to his students He's constantly referencing Old Testament passages and interpreting them in the context of the events that they see having been fulfilled before them. And so again, to us, that may not have the same impact unless we come from a Jewish background, but to them, it was pretty huge that he could show biblically that Jesus was the fulfillment of all those prophecies. In addition, there are 75 different allusions to Old Testament events, 35 references that refer to the kingdom of God. And to the Jewish people at the time, the phrase, the kingdom of God, referred to the millennial kingdom of Christ that Isaiah spoke so frequently about when Christ would come and set up His kingdom upon the earth. So when we get to the point of saying, okay, then why did Matthew write this gospel? The answer is, I think, pretty obvious. The first thing is he wanted to convince people, particularly Jewish people, that Jesus was the Messiah. He just wanted to make that argument. He's being purely polemic, if we say it. He's, just, he's making a point. He's arguing a truth. But secondly, he wrote it for encouragement. because one of the things was that immediately upon uh, the church's beginnings, beginning with Jesus' crucifixion and following thereafter, particularly in Judea, within Jewish quarters, the, the believers in Christ suffered. We don't often think about this but the first persecutors of christians weren't the romans weren't the greeks they were the jews i mean they saw they saw christianity as being a terrible heresy and they believed according to the old testament teaching that heretics should be executed so when we get to the book of of acts we read about the the jewish community persecuting the Jewish leadership in particular, persecuting John and Peter, cutting James's head off, putting Peter in prison, beating Peter and and, and John, uh, Paul going out to arrest and kill and uh, exterminate Christianity. So because of that, these promises of Christ, and there's so much in the Gospel of Matthew about enduring suffering as followers of Jesus Christ and the reward that will come to you if you do so. See, we're fortunate. We live in a culture where we don't suffer for our faith. I know, I know, somebody made fun of your bumper sticker and you said, "Boy, was I persecuted today." <laughs> well, you know, we don't, you know, if that's the worst that happens to you, you've had a good day. We don't go through the hardships that they went through because with them, when we talk about when it talks about acts that they were putting people, or excuse me, John chapter 9, they put people out of the synagogue if they became Christians. You have to understand that the entire world revolved around the synagogue. If you were excommunicated from the synagogue, you were cut off from your family. You were cut off from your career, your employment, your source of income, your lifestyle. You were cut off from your home. You literally became homeless. You were like a leper. You were cast out and had no place to go. So there was a very high threshold for faith very early on in the Christian church. And so when we look at the the severity of their commitment to Christ... I mean, they are all in. They didn't become all in all of the sudden because it felt like it, and they got moved by another course of just as I am. No, they had to sit and say, what is it going to cost me? And it's not unlike what you see in various parts of the world, particularly in, in, in northern India today. What is it going to cost me if I make a decision to follow Jesus? And if it didn't cost you your life, it would certainly cost you everything else that you would see as defining the quality of your life. And so to be able to encourage people to stand firm and to endure through these hardships was pretty critical. But secondly, there was a destruction coming. Jesus foretold the destruction of Jerusalem in Matthew 24. And what Jesus was saying to them was unthinkable, unimaginable, actually incomprehensible. Because they simply believed that God would preserve them because the temple was there. And we find that the earliest persecutions against Jesus and the church is the fact that you're diminishing the importance of the temple as the center of Judaism, even though in practical terms it had ceased being the center of Judaism after the Babylonian captivity. Because the real heart of Jewish life was in the synagogue, not in the temple. And most people could not afford to go to the temple except maybe once, if at all, in their entire lifetime. And so it was, it was more symbolic, but it became representative to them. It was this point of arrogance and pride because it was a magnificent and beautiful building. I mean, you may not have thought of it like this, but it was easily the most majestic building on the planet there was nothing in Rome at this point that even came close to it. You know, we, what we realize, we talk about the Colosseum in Rome and understand that the Colosseum was built with the gold that was plundered from the temple when the Romans destroyed it. That discovery was just found five years ago. I actually found a dedicatory plaque uh, telling those very facts. So you have to understand that the majesty of this building was was beyond any kind of thing you could compare it to. It was awe-inspiring that even today, if you or I were to walk up to the temple that Herod had constructed, we would jaw drop and we just, I mean, we, we would be in utter amazement. And so Jesus is saying, this is going to be wiped out. And it's going to shatter. You're talking about Jewish Christians who feel about the temple the way you and I feel about Christmas and Thanksgiving or the White House. You know what I mean? There is an emotional, nostalgic uh, attachment. And he says, you have to understand this thing that you see as a, a statement of your identity, a statement of your security is going to be taken away. Some of you have had that experience in your life already. You could tell us a thing or two about what it means to have everything taken from you. But when you're talking about on a national level and you're talking about the church is primarily centered in Jerusalem at the time that this gospel is in circulation, it's primarily a Jewish movement at this point, it's, it's, he's saying, you better be ready. There's going to come some tragic times. And in fact, in chapter 21 and verse 43, he says to him, therefore, I tell you that the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to people who will produce its fruit. Staggering statement. The kingdom of God, that's that's their heritage as the Jewish people, the kingdom of God. He says, no, it's going to be taken away from you and it's given to people who will produce fruit to the glory of God. Later on chapter 3, Jesus, as he's standing on on the Mount of Olives, looking down, he says, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those who are sent to you. How often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings but you were not willing. And then he said, look, your house is left to you desolate. They needed to be prepared for that, but they needed to be prepared for why God was going to do that. And that's really the, the, the third thing I think is important about this, that what he's preparing them for is to accept a new covenant that would fulfill and supplant, that is supersede or replace, the old It's interesting, when Jesus says in Matthew 5.17, He says in the Sermon on the Mount, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. The word that's used there literally means to to fill to the top so that there's no room left. It it means to, to basically consummate and bring to its final completion, to make it complete in every particular part. In other words, Jesus says, I haven't come to destroy it. I've come to fulfill what is speaking of. So that later on in John's gospel, he says, you study the scriptures, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, but they are they which testify of me. And so he's, he's really preparing their hearts and their minds to say, as the temple goes away, the Old Testament is going to be fulfilled. I'm bringing in a whole new covenant relationship. And the thing that's interesting to me about that covenant relationship and why this was probably exciting to Matthew. Because what that covenant talked about is that it would accept into the family of God those whom Judaism had at this time excluded. And we really see that because 5 through 7 we have the Sermon on the Mount. Chapter 8, 9, and 10, what, is it, what follows? A whole series of teachings and miracles by Jesus. Particularly interesting ones because we find that he heals a leper. He heals a Roman centurion. He heals a demon-possessed man. He heals a tax collector or saves a tax collector. He raises a dead person. He heals a diseased woman. You see, every one of those people were ceremonially, spiritually unclean within Judaism, were not allowed to go to the temple, were not allowed to be part of anything that was Jewish life because those in the minds of Judaism at that point were people who had been cursed by God because of some some obvious or secret sin. And therefore, these people are kicked out. And it's interesting. Jesus preaches a sermon on the Mount. He basically redefines everything about what it means to follow God. And then he starts giving examples of Jesus entering into the life of the forsaken and the lost and the cast off, the people whom God, the Jews themselves said, God is not interested in them. He was talking about people like you and me. In chapter 11, verse 8, he says that, I say to you that many will come from the east and from the west and will take their places at the feast with Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, in the kingdom of heaven. He's talking about Gentiles, non-Jews. These things were... Just outrageous statements in the day. You're telling us that these Gentiles who we have grown up calling dogs and diminishing and viewing them as being worthless creatures that should be wiped from the earth, and when Messiah comes, our, our, our hope is that He will completely obliterate them and we won't have to deal with these nasty people anymore? And Jesus says, you know, some of them are going to enter the kingdom of God before you. Chapter 12, 21, He says, and "...in His name the nations will put their help." See, the word Gentile literally means nations. It means non-Jews. There are Jews and then there are nations. There are Jews and there are non-Jews. Jews Jews are loved, non-Jews aren't. And he says the nations are going to put their hope in the Messiah. And then in verse 28, what does he tell the church to do? Go and make disciples of all nations. In other words, I want you to target, to focus on the Gentile world. That you have been trained all your life not to care about or regard. Remember later on in chapter Acts when Peter has a vision on the roof and he and God says, you know, don't call unclean what I've made clean, and then he sends him to go minister to Cornelius, and centurion, this this uh, uh, Roman centurion. I mean, uh, the whole and he gets in trouble. Then he gets when he comes back to Jerusalem, he gets in trouble because you just went and had dinner at the house of a Gentile. I mean. I'm sorry, I get really excited when I see this kind of stuff, but it's like, it's like Jesus was just blowing the doors in the same way that when Jesus died, it says the veil of the temple was rent from the top to the bottom, revealing that the way into the holiest of holies, into the very presence of God was no longer restricted, but was open because Christ had taken away that barrier of separation called Sin. Matthew is, is really following up on that. He's busting the doors off of Judaism and saying God is inviting everybody to come, everybody without regard, even the people that you think God wouldn't love, He loves and He wants you to love them too. Um, so that when we sit down and say, okay, what else kind of stands out about the gospel of Matthew? A few other things. One of the things I mentioned about the miracles... Uh, There are 35 miracles recorded in the Gospels, depending on your opinion. Some people add and take away ones. But basically, there's 35 miracles. Um, Luke has 20, and Matthew has 20. They have the most recorded miracles. But what's interesting about the difference between Matthew and Luke, Matthew's Gospel focuses on miracles of nature. In other words, we have things like He stills the storm. Remember the ship was cast in the sea in chapter 8 and they think the ship's going to sink and they wake Jesus up, don't you care that we die? And Jesus stands up and says, peace, be still, and the storm stops. And suddenly they're saying, what manner of man is this that even nature responds to Him, obeys His commands? We have the feeding of the 5,000. We have the walking on water, feeding of the 4,000. Yes, those were two separate events. Uh, There's the money that, tax money that Peter finds in the fish of the mouth and Jesus' instruction. And the very last miracle of nature was the cursing of the fig tree, the only negative miracle in the entire Bible. Jesus cursed the fig tree and it died. He never cursed anything or killed anything else except that fig tree. Now, I think there was a symbolic representation in that because one of the symbols of Israel was a fig tree. And he says, I came looking for fruit. There was no fruit. There's a curse on you and it died. And that's exactly what he was foretelling was going to happen to Jerusalem and to Jews, that the nation was going to perish because they had rejected. He'd come looking for fruit and there was none. But it's really the... um, the emphasis upon, uh, Matthew's real concern is teaching. That's the focus of his. In fact, all of the miracle stories are really bookend whole sections of biblical teachings, if you will. And there are five major discourses or major teachings that we have in Matthew's gospel. So that uh, the first and the most famous, of course, is the uh, Sermon on the Mount, chapters 5 through 7. And this is a particular passage of Scripture that is considered uh, critical to the Christian faith because it's central in the sense that it lays out the ethical tenets of the Christian life. I mean, if I'm a follower of Christ, these are the ethics that are supposed to be the governing principles of my life. And uh, it's interesting because what they do, is Jesus said, I haven't come to destroy the law, I've come to fulfill it. And in essence, to replace it with something new and alive, that's really what the Sermon on the Mount becomes. What was basically the, the, the teachings of the book of Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and so forth, now has been replaced with this whole new concept of following after God uh, by faith in Christ. What he shows through the Sermon on the Mount very clearly is the impossibility of pleasing God by keeping the law. That's why he uses those tells those stories. You know, uh, you know that says don't t- lust after your neighbor's wife. But if you or don't commit adultery. But if you've ever looked at a woman lustfully, you've already committed adultery in your heart. So you're already guilty on a heart level, even though you haven't had a chance to act on it. Well, I mean. Suddenly, you've you, you never murdered anybody, but you can hate somebody in your heart, and essentially, you can't murder somebody until you hate them first. So therefore, if you have hate in your heart, it's really just a precursor to the to the greater expression of that sin, which is murder, so you're still a sinner if you even think it. Now, I look around the room, and I just know for a fact that you thought it. That and many other things. In fact, if I go one minute over my time limit, you'll think it heavily, but it's you know so it's really really critical but what we find is he introduces jesus the messiah lays out this teaching not in chronological sequence because according to luke's gospel the sermon on the mount came much later in Jesus' public ministry but matthew moves it right to the front because he's trying to not record a historical event he's trying to make a spiritual declaration the same thing is when we find the the second one in chapter 10 we call it the little commission because in chapter 28 we have the great commission What is a little commission? It's when Jesus appoints the 12 apostles and sends them out for the first time and instructs on them and how they're to do ministry so that not everything is a parallel to how we're supposed to live. Sometimes people make that mistake because it's it's very, very situational to their circumstance when he says, don't go to anybody except Jews essentially my translation. But, you know, today we'd say, well, that's, that's not what he said at the end of the book. He said, go to everybody. But he said, righteousness had to begin by preaching the gospel to the Jews. So we call it that little commission. But the heart of their message was the kingdom of heaven is near. And again, remember what I said about the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God? These are terms that resonated with Jewish mind, Jewish thinking. That meant the millennial kingdom of Christ. He says the, the time when God will come and reign. Well, we know now that we're referring to is reigning over the, the hearts of the believers in the church to be fulfilled ultimately in the millennial reign of Christ. But this is something he's saying that you need to respond to God right now. This is something that is preeminent. It's kind of like if you lived in Florida and they, and they tell you a hurricane is coming. You know, everybody in Florida does the same thing. They run and get all the water, all the propane, all the... They start filling up with all the supplies and packing up and putting plywood on the windows and doing all this stuff because they know something is coming. It's the fact that they have information that something threatening or dynamic is going to take place propels them to action, and that's what he said you're supposed to do. Propel people to response, telling the kingdom of God is coming upon you. In chapter 13, we have another teaching session we call where we have seven different parables that Jesus teaches, and He explains why He teaches in parables. It doesn't indicate it in the text that Jesus taught that much in parables, yet chapter 13 tells us that He regularly, almost all the time, used parables to illustrate. And not just simply because stories stick in people's minds better than data, but simply because, he said, those who want to hear the truth are going to have to apply themselves to understand. They're going to have to say, God, what does this mean to me? That even today is the difference between people who grow in Scripture and those who don't. I mean, some people uh, are great at absorbing large amounts of data. I had a friend who had a photographic memory. He could read through anything and even the Bible and could re- he just knew it. He could recall it just like that. I, I hated his guts for many reasons, but nonetheless, but, you know, had that, but he wasn't a spiritual man in the least. And that's the whole point is that's not what makes us spiritual. And it even, isn't even so much what you know, it's how you know it. You may have all the information, but it's that when you come to God and say, God, help me to know what this means. That's where God begins to open up a whole new set of eyes that you didn't know you had called spiritual eyes, and you start seeing things in God's Word. Personally, for my own devotional life, I I mean, I found that, um, well, I'm kind of studied out at this point in my life, but I really do want to know what God has to say to me. I want the Word of God to be prophetic in my life i wanted to speak to my heart i wanted to move me i wanted to change me i wanted to challenge me as long as it's not too hard a to challenge but you know i want to be sort of challenged you know i'm not a ninja warrior here but but nonetheless we have that whole section and then he, the next section in chapter 16 is the section where he talks about the church we all remember where peter says I, I tell you peter that on this rock i will build my church and the gates of hades will not overcome it What is the rock? Well, unfortunately, the Roman church and the Orthodox church have concluded that it's based upon Peter being the first pope or uh, metropolitan or something like that. But the simple fact is it's what Peter confessed. He said, you are the Christ, you are the Son of the living God. And Jesus said, I will build my church on this. And the powers of hell, the gates of Hades, which literally is a, a metaphor for the most powerful forces of hell, will not be able to prevail against that. You know, you think about historically the efforts to extinguish Christianity and how s- unsuccessful that has been. In fact, we, it's a historical fact I won't have time to go into, but whenever the church comes under intense persecution, it grows extra, exponen- ex- exponentially. It just multiplies, uh, which it has for fascinating reasons. And then last of all, we have in chapter 24 through 25, the last major teaching section where he talks about the end. And he not only tells us prophetically, because we like to focus on the things that are going to take place and how they might parallel with our events today. Um, It says in in Matthew 24, 3, that Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives. That's why we call it the Olivet Discourse. Um, And his disciples came to him privately, tell us, they said, what will be the sign of your coming in the end of the age? And we like to focus upon that stuff. It's really fascinating. Uh, And it has some significant spiritual value. But the thing I think we can overlook is when you look at what Jesus talked about he spent most of his time not talking about watching the signs of the end but making sure that our heart is in the right place when it comes most of that section is about heart issues about living our lives with expectancy to watch to be ready to live in that attitude that it can be at any moment that there I don't have to wait for another sign to be fulfilled that when he comes, it's going to be like the lightning. He says, coming from the east and the west, and the Lord's going to descend with great glory. I mean, great glory, and uh, you know, it's a, that whole concept of of this imminent, immediate appearing of Christ, and and at that point, there's going to be no change of mind. <laughs> there's no, there's no. You can't slip on a new uniform or step across the line and be on the other team. You you're frozen for eternity in the space that you're occupying before he comes. Well, which brings me to the, really, my concluding comments, that there are really three things I think that Matthew wanted to communicate. The first thing was that there was a new kingdom who was bringing, a new king who was going to bring in a new kingdom, but a kingdom not made of geographical regions, but rather of redeemed souls, not of people who were enslaved to the things of this world or the things of this earth or even the powers of darkness, but they're really people who have been redeemed and become the family of God. There's a new king. He's, he's coming to reign and to rule over to those who will surrender to His sovereignty. And secondly, this new king is going to bring in a new covenant. And this new covenant is going to have a totally new character. It's not one of like the old of rules and rituals and rites and regulations, but it's going to be a new covenant of grace that God is going to relate to us based upon grace through His Holy Spirit. And then lastly, that what that translates into is a new life, that God is giving you a new life. And even in terms of His commission at the end of the gospel, the great commission, go into all the world and preach the gospel, essentially who's going to do that except somebody who has had such a transformational experience with their life? I mean, the reality is every one of us is going to be oriented to taking care of ourselves. You know, I'm going to make sure that my my little kingdom is secure. It may not be much to look at, but it's mine. You know, and, and that's how we, we by nature live our life. What He calls us to is not native to our nature. And the ex- reality is that when we are born of the Spirit of God, God begins to do a revolutionary work which is designed to change the focus of our life and to make us people who are committed to doing the thing that He retells them 20 times in the gospel, that's one commandment that's repeated by Jesus 20 times, multiple times more than any other commandment, even the commandment to love others. It dwarfs in comparison to this one commandment, and that is this, follow me. Because if we follow Him, all the other commandments will fall into place. We'll love because... (laughs) you follow Jesus, you're going to find yourself loving the lepers. You're going to love the dead people. You're going to love the the liars, the cheats, the thieves, the criminals, the the backbiters, the slanderers, the, the haters, the, you know, the murderers. You're going to find God bringing you into context where He's going to say, now, I will give you the grace to love them if you will step into the love zone with me. And so, new life. I took a minute and 45 seconds. Too long. I kind of get thrilled by this. Me keeping time is just amazing. <laughs> they took the calendar down and put the clock back. Father God, we thank you for this just opportunity. I thank you for the opportunity that you give me to talk about this amazing, majestic, wonderful, glorious book. Lord, I pray that through the things that I shared tonight that, that I would just love it. Everyone in this room just went home and said, I'm going to read Matthew. I just want to read it for myself. Because really that's the objective of what we're doing here. I just want people to read your word, Lord. I want them to experience not just the information, but the power of your spirit as you speak through it to things in our life that otherwise we would be just blind to, Lord. Amaze us, thrill us, Lord, just by the revelation of your word. We pray in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. No, hallelujah. No, okay. God bless you guys.